good day when you can start off with a quote from St. Hugh Nibley, <laughs> patron saint of uh, BYU. Here's, here's what he said. So, so today we're going to be talking about angels. Okay? He said, Brigham Young said, pray that you never see an angel. He was talking historically. Almost everyone who saw an angel left the church. They came back, but they had these terrible problems that gave them inflated egos. They thought they were somebody special. I, I think about uh, uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, and he's talking about how he was caught up to the third heaven, and he had these great experiences looking at section 76, I guess, of the Doctrine and Covenants, the three degrees. And then he says, uh, and lest, unless I be lifted up, in other words, unless I think I'm kind of really great, what was given to me was a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And sometimes I think we, I, I know me, for instance, that if I saw an angel and, and it was pertinent to what we were talking about in class, I would be right there with, hey, I saw an angel last night and here's what he said. And this is how it correlates to Alma. That's why I don't see angels. <laughs> because the Lord knows that I wouldn't keep my mouth shut. Okay? Or that we think we're somebody, well, have you seen an angel? I have. That's another reason we don't see angels. Right? They were, but they couldn't take it. Like that. They were special, he says. They were, but they couldn't take it. It would be very dangerous if we were exposed to the other world to any degree. Only people that are very humble can do that. Yes. And as he was driving President Klaus, you know, he said, everybody thinks you're wonderful, everybody believes that you're just great, but, but. you're not that special. <laughs> <laughs> I thought his phrase was actually, just don't inhale. <laughs> just don't inhale. In other words, so be aware of that, they're going to love you, but just don't inhale. Yeah. Our Sunday school teacher yesterday gave this quote. He said that if he's praying for angels, if they come, they're just going to quote scripture anyhow. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Okay. We're going to kind of get there in a second. Uh, he says, We can't do that. We're not that humble. All right. Now, the other thing, though, that I think becomes important, and this is this actually came from uh, Wilford Woodruff. The Lord never did. Never did or ever will send an angel to anyone merely to gratify the desire of the individual to see an angel. If the Lord sends an angel to anyone, he sends him to perform a work that cannot be performed only by the administration of an angel. Think about all of the times that throughout the scriptures that we hear about angelic visitations. They are doing something that nobody else on earth can do. They are bringing information or keys or something that requires intervention from God that he couldn't do it with some of the people that were already there. Does that make sense? Well, how does that apply to Alma then? Ah, so hang on to that one. You're asking the right question about how, how does that apply to Alma? Wait and see. Yeah. So what about ministering angels who come to bring us peace and comfort? Yeah, exactly right. So what about a ministering angel? If we if we look at this quote... Is there something that that angel is bringing that nobody else could bring? Because otherwise he'll use other angels like home teachers and bishops and stuff. 
But there must be something specific that is coming from that 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 angel is going to bring. And there's something that Alma's going to get from the angel that he couldn't get from anybody else. Uh, in just a second. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have to wonder if those kind of things fall in the same category as patriarchal blessings. And and that they're for you, they're for no one else, if they do happen. Right. And there's something that they have specifically for you. Or that like especially in like we're gonna find with Alma, there's only something that we will receive if it was done in this way. Because it's it it moves the whole process forward. Okay. All right. So let's hop over then uh, to Mosiah 27. Oh, and this actually gives us a chance to answer uh, a question that we had last week. I ran across this. Um, we're talking about the fact that when, the, when there's an alternate religion of priestcraft that's sitting alongside um, uh, the true gospel, that priestcraft itself has to, uh, it grows on being able to, to put my money and pride and growth, and it cannot live next to the gospel. So when somebody is going to climb into the great and spacious building, they immediately must attack and they must try to destroy and they must try and persecute there's nothing there wouldn't if, if, if we're looking at uh, Nahor's car on the back there wouldn't be a bumper sticker on the back that just says uh, let's all live together in peace because there's not going to be a live together in peace if you thrive it destroys my profession so I must attack. And we're going to find that uh, it got so bad in verse 2, King Mosiah has to send a proclamation that nobody's going to persecute. Uh, there's a strict command for all the churches that should be no persecution, let no pride or haughtiness disturb the peace. And every man should esteem his neighbor as his enemy. And for these priests, uh, they should be laboring with their own hands for support. Now for the priestcraft... Among the Nahors, uh, that's, they're not laboring with their own hands, are they? That's where I believe, just my own idea, that the idea of the profession of Nahors means we're not really a church. It's a prof I'm a professional speaker. I just speak. It's like Toastmasters, only I'm getting rich. I'm a motivational speaker... So it's all right if I don't labor by my own hands, even though we do have a, a belief system that goes with that. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. That's why I said, oh, wait a minute. So these Nahors then are going to... Basically like all Christians Well, at least it was back then. Uh, cer certainly now we don't have a... There isn't a part of our constitution that says preachers can't be supported by their congregations. Uh, all right, now, before we get into this, let, let me tell you, how, how would you do with a, um, if you went into some, some kind of a time capsule 
and, and you somewhere in the future, like 20 years from now, uh, we were about to hear a talk in general conference from the General Relief Society president of the church, Miley Cyrus. Or from the newest apostle of the church, Charlie Sheen. It would be it would be a miracle, wouldn't it? In both cases. Why? Oh, we just can't even picture that somebody would be like, really? Well, they would have had to change their names. First of all, they need a different name. Paul, you know, it had to be different. Oh, uh, it would be so weird. We have to. Oh, yeah, okay, that's true. Yeah, instead of being Justin Bieber, it might be uh, you know Justinian or something. I don't know. Our newest apostle. They have the opportunity to change, though. Well, certainly they do. It they have the opportunity to change. How are we with their change? How are we if they change? Fine. Would we be a little suspicious? Maybe. You ever had a convert show up with a bunch of tattoos? You go, maybe. I'm not sure. I have to watch. Okay. This is Alma. This is Alma. Um... Now the sons of Mosiah were numbered among the unbelievers. And all of the sons of Alma were numbered among them. He'd be an Alma after his father. Now listen to these terms. He is seen as wicked and idolatrous. Remember, we were talking last time that if we really think there's a pretty good chance that this took place kind of in the Mesoamerican area and probably what was happening is that this alternate religion, this somehow blending of the Mulekites... Judaism and and the Mayan influence had an awful lot of idols. Is a worshiping of a lot of, of this. Okay, and so he's a very wicked man, idolatrous man. He's a man of many words. He did speak much flattery. Just a quick reminder: what was the difference between mockery and flattery? Mocking is taking attacking them. Flattery is attacking the people around you and lifting you up by putting them down. Okay? So my flattery is, as we've talked about before, flattery is really coming and saying, you're smarter than that Mormon stuff. I can't believe you still believe in angels. You're more intelligent than that. Come on. I I expected more of you. They're dumb, you're not. So I have to mock everybody else around you to lift you up. Okay? Sounds very similar to current Yeah. You know what? Our supporters are smarter than your supporters. I can't believe that you believe in that. We're smarter than that. Okay? Uh, it's a very it's a subtle thing, but it's 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 it, it's based on our pride. Okay? So he's gonna do much flattery. Therefore he led the people to do out of manner of his iniquities. How come iniquities comes out of flattery? What is there about flattery that gives me carte blanche to sin? Pride. Why? What is there prideful about that? I'm above what? I'm above the rules. Yes. The rules apply to the little people. I love one of the uh, probably the the, uh, uh, number one uh, barbecue place. Um, 
in, in the country, according to a lot of magazines, is Franklin Barbecue in Austin. It continually makes either the top one or two. And, and last time Cindy and I were there, and because we wanted to go eat, and it's like 11 o'clock, and I says, okay, how long of a wait are we looking at? And he says, we can probably get you in by four or five. Okay. Guess not. <laughs> but, but a seven or eight hour wait at Franklin's is not out of the ordinary. And I was reading recently that, uh, I don't know who the, the, uh, the rapper was that was, did a concert in Austin and wanted to go get barbecue. And he shows up at Franklin and he goes right to the head of the line. People have been waiting about seven or eight hours. And, and to his credit, uh, Mr. Franklin said, no, you go to the back like everybody else. But it's a sense that says, I'm, I'm better than everybody else. I deserve, um, I deserve something different. And I can sin and it's okay, but you can't. That's flattery. Okay? All right. So he became a great hinder, hinderment to the prosperity of the church, stealing away the hearts. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, stealing, because there's going to be a word that, he, that he's going to use that is in some ways really related to stealing that I think is just perfect. Okay, Stealing away the hearts, causing much dissension. All right now, and so they're going about, and, and I'm going to tell you, uh, Mormon says, as they were going about rebelling, an angel of the Lord appeared, and he descended as if it were a cloud, and a voice of thunder, and then they're going to fall. Now, this, this instance... One of the things that I like about this, Mormon has at his disposal a number of sources as he's doing his abridgment of this. So I'm sure that he has Alma's record at that time. I'm sure that he has Ammon and Aaron and Himni, I mean, he's got their records as well, what they saw, what they heard. And then we're going to get in Alma's own words two other uh, additional accounts of this experience in Alma 32 and Alma 36. Alma 36 being in a, in a large Hebraic poem. But he's going to tell this story a few times. And each time that we look at it, we're going to get different elements of this event. Which tell us, gives, gives us a much clearer. Which, by the way, did Joseph Smith ever do that? Never, Joseph Smith ever give different, depending on who he was talking to, what, was it, what would he tell him about? The first vision. So to some people who weren't, who didn't deserve very much or it was a brief encounter, he'd tell a little bit. To somebody else, he'd tell a little bit more. To somebody else, depending on what he was talking about, he would add additional elements to that. Which weirds some people out when they go, well, there's different accounts of the first vision. Well, his audience was different. His experience was different. He's going to tell. But when you put the whole thing together, that first vision wasn't just a father and a son and... and and the, the accounting, there were angels and there was all kinds of experiences that happened with that and Joseph didn't always tell other aspects of that. So you kind of have to take this whole thing with Alma, put it together, and now you see a broader range of this event. But you also have the account of other people who heard it and they recorded it. So, I'm going to, so today I want to take, kind of put them all together as much as we can to see it. Okay? So... The angel's going to stand and say, Alma, arise and stand forth. In Alma 36, 
He's going to say, you don't see it here, but in Alma 36, he'll say, so I stood up and stood before the angel. He's not just laying there cowering on the ground. Stand up. Okay. And so now it's going to be a face-to-face encounter with an angel. And um, the angel's going to say, well, let me come back to this for a second. What was it that, why did, why would, according to Wilford Woodruff, why would the Lord send an angel to Alma when somebody else would have done? Look at 15. And imagine Alma now standing before him, face to face, nose to nose. With a, and and the, they all, all the accounts talk about how the ground shook. This is quite a moment. Okay? In some ways, I picture this a little bit like sometimes if you have a hard, rough, rough old uh, football coach and he's got kids that just aren't doing their thing, he's going to get right up to them nose to nose, face to face, and he's going to get after them. Well, listen to this angel get after Alma with the ground and sense around sound and shaking and lights and full <laughs> pyrotechnics. Uh, he's he's going to say, uh, Now behold, Alma, can you dispute the power of God? Behold, doth not my voice shake the earth? And can ye not be also behold me before you? I am sent from God. Okay. <laughs> that, that would make an impression. Now, he's, he's coming for in full power. Now, think about other times that we've had angels show up. How did, the, how did the angel approach Mary? Or either Joseph? And they would say unto them, Fear not. Peace be unto thy soul. Is Alma getting this? Knock it off. I'm coming in power. Can't you feel the ground? And I am from God. The one that you have been going around preaching doesn't exist. Who doesn't have power. Now, that is a pretty good speech. Okay? Now... So, so against that backdrop, the angel's going to start with, uh, the Lord has heard the prayers of thy people and the prayers of thy servant Alma, and he's prayed with faith. Now, let's stop here because this is the one, we've, heard, we've had this discussion before, but let's just mention it again. This is the one where every parent in the church looks at this verse and says, how come my kids don't get angels? My kid that is being weird, that won't keep the commandments, is not going on his mission, that he's got his life and he won't get his eagle. And he's had the project sitting there for two years. Send an angel. Make it happen. How come he got the angel and nobody else did? I think it has to do with their foreordination from heaven. Part of it is that Alma has a foreordination. And their responsibility is much greater 
to okay. teach, to teach and to share that experience, like Paul and yeah. How come Paul got it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And felt like this was the best thing for the people around him, probably. So he was actually humble. And so we look at Alma and we read these words about he was idolatrous, he was wicked. But his heart could have been was in a whole different land. And then and that same thing is, you know, God's purposes must be fulfilled. We have forever families and so we know a little bit maybe we're in a different place also for dispensation, our children, what they know and where they're gonna end up and say where Alma Boy, I think Jenny's on my jury. Should be good, wouldn't she? Yeah. And it makes it, yeah, that's right. So just like Paul. I mean, Alma really is Paul, isn't he? This is really the same person. That is, and when they believe something needs to happen, they're going to get out of their house, they're going to go get them. There's nothing lazy about these guys. And when they do something, they don't do it halfway. They do it wholehearted. So Alma, I, did, I, I, I agree. I think Alma was fully invested that this, was, this would be the most important for, thing for people around him. I also feel like um, sometimes when someone has been very unrighteous in their life and they I love to hear converts talk about what it has done in their lives and so Alma could be a great for him to come back and say this is what I was teaching but now I know I was wrong yeah it could have a great effect on me it makes a big difference yeah Sean. Angel-like, right? Yeah, like with your son, the Lord didn't need to send a uh, an actual angel from heaven because He had your son, right? Yeah. I'm going to do a brother Hinkley. I'm going to see if he'll speculate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll wait over here. <laughs> He taught us the lessons about the high priest and how the lion seemed to diminish. And now yeah. we have Alma the senior, the first one coming up again. Yeah. And Alma the junior is supposed to be the next high priest. He's and, and will be. probably to do that. And the angel says, this is my church and I will put them and he's overthrow it. So I'm thinking of Alma, in his, uh, Alma the younger in his position, yeah. needed a wake-up call. And the church is saying, my church is not going to be destroyed, even though you were the one called. If you don't do it, Absolutely. you're out. Well, <laughs> I, something else, perfect. So, so here's my question then. What was Alma the elder actually praying for? 
Because this becomes really important. What was the actual question? What was he actually wanting? What was he actually desiring? For the good of the church. Because listen to what the angel is going to say to him. Uh, now I say unto thee, bottom of 16, Alma, go thy way and seek to destroy the church no more, that their prayers, Alma, Messiah, that their prayers may be answered, and this even if what? You will be cast off. Now, Alma is going to tell you in, he translated that word in his head. In Alma 36, he didn't hear the word cast off. Alma heard the word what? Destroyed. That how that, that's how that translates in his head. Angel said cast off according to the sons of Messiah probably. Alma heard unless you are going to be destroyed. So what was Alma the older praying for? The preservation of the church. And Heavenly Father, if you need to take my son to do it, do it. If destroying my son means that the church survives, do it. Wow. Because Alma's being told, this church is going to survive. And it sounds a little bit like uh, Jiggle and Kimball. This church will survive despite the mistakes of the missionaries. No. This church will survive and even if you need to be destroyed to do it. And he could have said, and by the way, we're preparing the way for the Savior who's coming in less than a hundred years. So I'm not going to let you destroy this. So I believe that for Mosiah and for Alma, it wasn't like save them at any cost. They said, we need them to be shown great power and we, so that they can accept the truth. And if they won't, and if not, then what? If they have to be destroyed that the church survives, so be it. I think that's, that's the message they were praying for. Sometimes as parents, if we were praying for an angel to come and shake up our son or daughter, might we be tempted to say, we want them to be saved no matter what? But then if you say, but you know what? If they do that and it's going to be, a, it's going to be destructive to the ward, are you willing to say, well, then destroy my son? No, can't we find another way to do it? No, in this case, if they need to be destroyed, let that happen. That's what they were praying for. Okay? Alright. Now that said, let me bring you to the crux of this because I think we're about to be taught a very powerful lesson about how we live our lives and, and, and how uh, faith works. And we're going to see it through the eyes of Alma. And, and if we're going to rest everything in this lesson, here comes the major point that I hope that we walk away with today. Notice that how this is going to work. The angel in 14 is going to say, I've heard your prayers. We're going to answer. They want you to know. Uh, uh, I've come to convince thee of the power and authority of God. That the prayers of the servants might be answered. Fifteen. Are you getting my point? Can you feel my voice? Can you face to face? Are you feeling the power of it? Okay. Now, at that moment, Alma is most teachable. <laughs> you think Alma, the angel has Alma's complete attention. Okay. What do you want me to know? 
Listen to what he starts with, and it's not what you would necessarily think. You think, first of all, he'd say, just repent and knock it off. But he starts with, he starts down an interesting road. And this, I think, is critical in the development of our faith and in the faith of our kids and our rising generation especially. Where does he start? Now I say unto thee, Alma, go and do what? Remember. Remember what? Remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Helam. In order to start you down the road, I need to teach you to remember. Now, remembering is so critical then to the building of faith. Um, let me give you an example of that. Uh, oh, yeah, here it is. Let's go to Moroni 10.3. Because a lot of times when, when we want somebody, we're going to give them the Book of Mormon and we're going to say, okay, I want you to read the Book of Mormon and then, and then I'm going to have you do what? Pray about it. But I'm also going to have you go to Moroni 10.4. And I'm going to say, you know, uh, and when you receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, if these things are not true. Got it. You're supposed to pray about it. Now, a lot of times we forget verse 3. Because 3 is the forerunner to 4 in Moroni 10. You can't do 4 unless you do 3. Behold, I would exhort you that when you shall receive these things, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them, that you would do what? Remember. Remember. Remember what? How merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam. Okay, stop. If you have a convert sitting, or a potential convert sitting in your home, you're about to give them the Book of Mormon. What is he telling you they have to have faith in. What is the forerunner to the Book of Mormon? The Bible. The Bible. Mm -hmm. He said, now if, if you're trying to teach somebody who has no concept of God and no concept of all the merciful things the Lord has done from Adam down to the present day, and you say, now just read the Book of Mormon. You say, no, you have to have a pattern in your head of how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of man from the creation of Adam down. In this country, when we get to the 4th of July, and we're going to say this country is special. There's something about this nation. What do we have in our collective unconscious about this country? How merciful the Lord hath been unto us, right? And He raised up certain people. So in our collective unconscious are moments like Valley Forge and, and uh, Francis Scott Key and, and War of 1812 and, and uh, Gettysburg. We have this collective unconscious about how the Lord... And, and then the founders of the Constitution, and there it is. We have this collective sense that if you want people to understand how special America is, what do you have to do with them? Remember what? 
Our history. We have to go back to our history, which tells us why this is so special. Now, other than that, we're just no, we're no better than any other country. We're just a group of people living on this continent. Other people are living on other continent. What's make that any better? We have to remember, put some things together. Okay. Well, don't you think there's one other element that's required? Gratitude. And once we remember how merciful the Lord has been, then we look at those experiences. It's not just studying a history book, is it? Uh, I've been impressed. I, um, I've gone back in the last year or so. I've read a number of books on the Revolutionary War. Uh, and i got to tell you, it is, if you haven't been through, if you haven't read a number of these things, there is time after time after time after time after time. In, in the Revolutionary War and, and even in Boston and all that before the run-up to the war that our, our Revolutionary Army should have been just flat out destroyed. And they're about to be destroyed and then a storm shows up or a fog shows up or there's some intervening thing and you see divine providence just stick in and rescue that army right at that moment and it's, and it's like a fog or a, a storm or something like that. It's divine providence. So isn't it interesting that when uh, Alma is going to be, the Lord, that this angel is going to begin to explain to him, before we even begin to tell you what you need to do going forward, the first thing I need for you to do is to remember. Now, as I got thinking about this, I realized there's kind of a cool pattern here. When we look at the choices that we make on a regular basis, one of the things that I really came to learn in graduate school is trying to understand, A, why people do what they do, and then secondly, I began to gain a really great understanding about the fact that in so many cases, people do the best they can with the knowledge they have. And you think about, well, wait a minute, what about people that commit sins and they're doing all... People do the best they can with the knowledge they have. Mm -hmm. Based on what they believe will what? Make them happier down the road. So I choose today, I make choices today, based on the idea, my belief of what's going to happen. So part of that is, is that if I believe, my belief in what's going to happen, and, I, and when, if I do things here, I will be happier there. I've got to get me from here to there. Now, that means I have to have a belief in what's going to happen. Where does that belief come about what's going to happen in the future? My experience based on the past. Okay? So my experiences in the past prepare me for what I think I should be able to expect in the future. How did you know when you were driving here today that you could get in the car and the car is rolling down, down the street and then here comes a stop sign? How did you know that if you put your foot on the little pedal thing in the middle that the car will actually stop? You have to have faith that and that faith is based on experience 
But I have to know. So what happens the first time that we have to do something and we don't have past experience with it? I don't know if any of you have ever uh, had a chance to repel. Yep. There is a moment. And it's happened to me every time. I love to repel. But it happens to me every time that we get the rope tied off. We put, I put on my little harness thing. I run the rope through the carabiner. And then I walk over here and I stand on the edge of a cliff or a rock face and I turn and I look down and it's my, you know, and my heart about climbs out my chest. I, I was scared of heights all the time I was growing up. And when I stand there at the edge of the cliff, the, the next thing you have to do is lean back. And it's that moment when you go from standing to is the rope going to be there? And will it hold me up? And did you really tie that knot really good enough? <laughs> and is my carabiner really locked down? Is my belayer working? <laughs> well, but in my, if, if I've got the rope in my hands, the thing I like about belaying is that I can, I know that if I push off, by experience, I know that if I push off and my rope is here, I'm... And then when I'm ready to stop, I... Break. And if I just pop that thing, I stop. I go, I stop. I go, I stop. But when I'm standing on the edge of the cliff, even though I've done it before, I'm scared to death. I don't know yet if this is going to happen. I have by experience. I remember teaching a, a group of youth um, one year, and, and I taught them that one. We're going to go here, and they, and they kind of thought that was cool. Then I said, okay, now I'm going to change it. We're going to go Aussie. What does that mean? Oh. Well, you turn around and go forward. I won't do that. Okay? So, we're going to go <laughs> off, and then you're going to, instead of going backwards, you go forward. And you're going straight down, and then you have to have faith that at the last moment, you can go and stop close to the ground. Okay? And it was interesting. I had several kids that they saw me do it, and it's like, whoa, that's kind of cool. And so the first couple of times they go off. I had one kid that he, he climbs off, and he just goes, and then about three feet from the ground, he goes, and stops. And he goes, that was cool. I will tell you that that kid at the last Winter Olympics won a silver medal. In the bobsled. Okay? He's that, he was that kind of kid. But he had faith in himself and that he could be okay and that he could trust us. That if we say, you break that thing and you will come to a stop and not pile into the ground, it works. Okay, you said I can do it. I'm off. Okay? Our experiences in the present are dictated so much by our how we view our past, right? So whenever I have people sitting in my office that are getting married for the second or third time, and their first one ended like in a flaming bitter divorce, and they're sweating because it's like they're going to get married again, and my, if I look at my experience, my experience is bad stuff. And I'm going to... Am I going out there? And I, I, I remember what my experience was. Okay? 
So, that, that's just human nature. That's who we are. Okay, so, if we put different terms on it now, we're going to say that our ability to project ourselves into the future and to get what we want means that I will have faith. Faith in what? What's going to happen? And what is it that we want to happen? Well, in this church we say, well, we're forever families and you're going to be sealed and there's good stuff happening. So you have to trust. And, and that's, I have a hope that the commandments I keep and the things that I do now will result in me receiving some things that are greater than I have any idea in the present. How do I know I can do that? What makes the difference for you to get up in the morning on a Sunday morning and go to church? Where does, where does that come from? Yes, and where did that come from? Yeah. See, it comes from our past. Our past experiences, our past knowledge. It may come from our past experience of people that we've known. It may come from parents or missionaries or somebody that taught us what would happen in the past. And so we're going to make choices based on that. But then we have, that's looking in the past. Now if I'm going to make decisions for the future, I have to have faith in what? My past. I have to remember, remember. Remembering helps me have faith and hope to the future. Does that make sense? Okay. What's I have? Yeah. I was just thinking about um, when I was a kid and I was taught not to smoke. There really wasn't a lot of information about how dangerous cigarette smoking could be. But because I trusted my parents and, and had faith, then uh, I, today I'm so grateful I didn't touch Yeah. Them. Yeah, see, uh, I, re I remember being a kid and being out in the, the weeds, and we had like the weed stock, stuff like that, and I had some buddies that were like, we're going to pretend like we're smoking. <laughs> you know, they'll break off like a little tube thing, and they're going to light that on fire, you know, and blow that in. Okay, well, that looks weird. Let's try that one. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? Why would I do that? Well, that experience helped a lot. <laughs> it's like, dude, that is really stupid. Why, why would we do that? Okay? Alright. So let's go back here then. Because I need you to see now... Yeah? So, Han? Yes? Yeah, we do, and that there is that, and people will teach us and train us, but sometimes in that experience to say, I've always had a, whenever I've done this, I've always gotten hurt, so I'm going to do something different now, but I don't necessarily know for sure, I know that it isn't what I was doing before, but I'm going to do something different and change, I hope I have faith this will be better. Okay, I used to marry guys that were really destructive and controlling. I think I'll marry a very passive guy and see how that works. Well, it turns out that doesn't work very well either. <laughs> Just say that. Our faith depends on and works the fact that we we have to have faith in the things that someone has said to us. Yeah. These scriptures that you know, so like angels come and say things or prophets come and say things. And, and so we have to have faith in what they've said. 
But on the other side of that coin is we have to have faith in what they are going to say. Yeah. I could specifically note in here, but it's in this section of Alma, who have said, will you believe what I will say? Not yeah. what I've said, but what I will say. Well, then what's and coming? I think it's a greater test of faith to say, well, we believe the next thing that the brethren will say. Yeah. Here, here's the here's where the, this becomes really dangerous. By the way, there there is a and we've talked about this a little bit before. There is a trend in Christianity. It's in Judaism. It's now in and it's in Mormonism as well. And it's the trend towards uh, almost say hysterectomy, hysterosity. <laughs> We're trying to remove things. Yeah, maybe that's close. <laughs> hysterosity. And that is, we're going to say, you know what? We are more sophisticated. We're smarter than the people of the past. It's a flattery thing. So rather than believe in magic things, angels and plates and magic glasses and parting of seas and all those kind of stuff and, and men being crucified, can't we just see that as metaphors? There's a, there's a group, uh, a, a blog group that I follow on Facebook, so I want to see where they're going, that says, you know what, can't we just get past the, the idea of a first vision? That's embarrassing. Yes, uh-huh. We're going to be in the church, but we're kind of past the idea that there was a miraculous thing that happened, and he just came to himself. He had kind of a, whether it was a dream or knowledge or a realization that he had a work to do, can't we just accept that? Because it is kind of embarrassing to go to our colleagues and say, yeah, there was this boy and he saw two personages and they were God. And can't we just his historically say, Joseph Smith didn't get gold plates. There weren't gold plates and angels and magic glasses. He had access to some writings and he was maybe an idiot savant. And he just wrote this over time. And he got it from Solomon Spalding. Anyway, we'd want to get rid of the hist what we have described as our history and just say, in the same way that a lot of Christians are saying, we want the historical Jesus. The, the, the uh, History Channel and National Geographic is wonderful on the historical Jesus. What do they mean when they're saying the historical Jesus? It's the Jesus without the miracles. Without, without the miracles. Not divine. He lived, he died. And without the miracles. We're trying to get past that. So can't we accept his teachings and, and love his teachings, love one another. That's the only one we really remember. We like that love one another thing, which means don't be mean to people. Yes. But we don't want to do the parables and the changing of water to wine and all that kind of stuff. Walking on the water, we think that's a little crazy. Yeah, and the raising from the dead thing. Come on, we're beyond that. Now, if you separate the, the divine Jesus from the historical Jesus, if you separate the first vision from yes. the founding of the church, yes. you take away all of the faith, you take away the basis for everything. There you go. That is the, that is the problem. The problem is that when they become metaphors, when the idea that there was really a Moses and there was really a children of Israel in the wilderness and a parting of the Red Sea, 
and you take all of that out, now it's, now it's just a metaphor of coming away from bad things and begin coming together as a group, and it's a kumbaya moment kind of thing. Uh, a lot. Yeah, well, they're looking, they're, they're arguing, they're battling. They're, it, I don't know, we could see. When we start to separate ourselves out from that, now we undermine the faith because when it becomes a metaphor, you can change the metaphor however you want. If it really is Joseph in the, in the having a vision, now your ability to have faith is created because there's an actual thing that you have to nail it to. And to pray about and to get focused on that, not a metaphor that can be changed when, however we want to do it. That's the problem with creating a living document called the Constitution where we can change it however we want because we don't like it very much. As opposed to believing that it's inspired. So, alright. So, no? Yeah? Yeah, and they'll say that. Jesus was a sage. He was a wise man, like no better or worse than Confucius. Well, What we're just everything, but the metaphor changes based on what the sage said. And you know what? We can disagree with the sage. The sage said uh, homosexuality was wrong, but that's okay. We're more modern. We're more. We're in a better place. And you undermine. That's why this idea of remembering and the scriptures. And when you start looking for this, you're going to find that our faith is based on remembering, and it's remembering the stuff that we have in our history. Now, did Alma get this? Did he buy into this? Oh, let's look at, let me take a couple of places. Okay, in, in Mosiah 27, uh, he's gonna, the angel's going to say, Go and remember the captivity of thy fathers in the land of Elam. Now, let's hop over for a second to one of the other accounts that we have, and this is in Alma 36. Go over to Alma 36. Look at what he's going to say. Talking to his son, I would that you should do as I have done. I want you to do the same thing I've done. What have I been doing? Well, with the help from the angel, in remembering the captivity of our fathers, specifically, for they were in bondage, and none could deliver them except it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think he would have had, and he is a God of power. He is real. He exists. And surely he did deliver them in their afflictions. Now, look at the next line. What son was this delivered to? Anybody catch that one? What, where are we remembering the captive, captivity of our fathers? Where? In the land of? Helam. And I'm going to name my son what? Helam. Mum. Don't know for sure. But I would like to think that maybe this translates to son of Helam. A son of, son of the people that came out of captivity. Helam Mum. Don't know. But that makes sense to me. That he would be so remembering of that his experience that he might even name his son some derivation of the word heal. That, that makes sense. Prophets, especially in the Old Testament. Check Isaiah. Isaiah, anytime he was going to have a kid, stand back because the Lord was going to give him 
Alar Shazbaz something or other, you know, like my people are really my my people are really stupid or something, you know, and it's gonna, the name of the kid is gonna be that. Okay. Okay. I would that you remember that. Okay. Um, then he's gonna go to let's go over to Alma thirty or Alma twenty nine. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's Alma 32. <clears throat> uh, I'm not seeing it. Okay. Let's, let me go back here for a sec. Let's go to Alma 29. Because you're going to find that just about as, as Alma goes along, and we, we have a number of his teachings now in the book of Alma that's going to come, and, and he's going to cite this experience a number of times. Verse 10 of Alma 29. Behold, when I see many of my brethren truly penitent and coming to the Lord, their God, then is my soul filled with joy. Then do I remember what the Lord has done for me. Look at 11. Yea, I also remember the captivity of my fathers. <laughs> he really got this. Okay? <laughs> For I surely do know that the Lord did deliver them out of bondage, and by this did establish His church. And the Lord of God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did deliver them out of bondage. Yea, I have always remembered the captivity of my fathers. The same God who hath delivered them out of the hands of Egyptians, who did deliver them out of bondage. Okay? Marla, what about on Passover night? What is Passover about remembering? Being, uh, being uh, delivered from the bondage of the Egyptians. Yeah. And, and why, would, why would that night be different from all other nights? What are the, because, they, because they were set free. Yeah. And why is the Lord so, so, why is the Lord so anxious that Passover, if you look at how it was originally done, the idea of Passover is really focused a lot on the youth. We want the kids to do what? Remember, why? Because that's how faith is developed, right? Okay, now, let's pull from this one more here. Because this is the other layer I think we need to make sure that we get. Why is it so important we remember the captivity of our fathers? There's a pattern here. Who else is captive? Who else is in bondage? Everyone. We are. Ultimately, the whole idea of understanding and remembering the bondage and captivity, and so much of the Book of Mormon is about people in bondage and they're being brought free, is that we're trying to parallel what? Our own journey. That we are, we are sinful. And that we need help. And that how are we going to be saved? Jesus Christ. 
Only Jesus Christ can do it. Only God can deliver us because He has the power to do it. So if I'm going to remember, I've got to go through this process of trying to remember how He did this and how this works. Okay? Um, com- comments on this so far? That makes sense? Why it is that He would go back over and over this, this whole period of bondage. Okay, now, all right. Well, the time that we have remaining, let's go back to then. And let's talk about what happens. Because if we're not careful, we will, we will see this as uh, we, have, we, have a couple, we have several three-day conversions in the Scriptures, right? We have Alma. We have... Paul, we have who else? Jonah. Jonah, yeah, there's a kind of a conversion. Yeah, I like that. Lamoni and his wife, okay. We're saying, wouldn't it be nice if we could all of us just do like the the three-day retreat where we're going to do this, no matter what we've been doing, we're going to do the three-day experience and we pop out on the other side and life is good. Okay. What all did Alma go through for three days and three nights? He says, I was, um, went through the, the uh, experience of a damned soul. Okay, now, he's going to use a couple of words here that I like. When he comes out, he's going to say, when he finally wakes up, and I've had this experience, and Lamoni and I will do kind of the same thing. We're going to talk about him uh, next semester. The Lord said unto me, this is part of this vision. We don't have it recorded other than this. Marvel not that all mankind, men and women, must be born again, changed from their carnal and fallen state, like you, to a state of righteousness, being redeemed, Thus they become new creatures, and unless they do that, they can no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Now, listen to his verbiage when, when Alma talks about this experience. Because we talked about the fact that he was going about stealing the hearts of the children of men. Right? If I steal something, I take something that is not mine. Now, look at 28. Nevertheless, after waiting through much tribulation during this three-day period of time, repenting nigh unto death, the Lord in mercy has seen fit to what? Snatch me. Now, I went on a little search here. I love that word, snatch. (laughs) The the Hebrew word for, for snatch... Close as I could get to it was pluck. Or it was the Greek word, sorry. And John's going to sort of use that. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them or snatch them from my hands. So you get, the, you get this sense. Um, he's in a really bad place. And what is the Lord going to do? He's going to reach in and pluck, snatch. Grab, pull from what? Where was Alma pulled from? Chains of hell. Yeah, he, he was in this really awful place. I'm about to die. 
spiritually. I could be cast off. And he says, the Lord snatched me. Now, I don't know how often, if you think in your life, think about when people are going to, I joined the church. Or I'm going to be converted to the church. Or I gained a testimony. Or I received my endowments. I've gone and I've done these things and now I'm a better person for it. What term is he using? I was snatched, grabbed, plucked. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I'd like to snatch you from the things that you're doing and pull you close as a hen gathereth her chicks. You ever done that with your kids? You ever snatch them out of the road? I think it's that sense of saying the Lord will intervene if you will let Him and He will grab you from your road where you are, snatch you and pull you to back to safety. That's the, that's the imagery. Yeah, in fact, and he's going to give you, let's go back to, uh, in, in the time we have remained, let's go back to Alma 36. Uh, I started to actually, I was going to use this slide, but I won't do it. But let me just say that there are a number of great studies about all, all of Alma 36 is one poem. It goes from beginning to end. It's chiastic and in that it parallels all the way through the entire chapter. It's an amazing thing. It's where we first discovered chiasmus, that Hebrew parallelism. We found it in Alma 36. That's what unlocked it for everybody else. Jo uh, Brother John Welch did that. Now, he's going to say, listen to the terms he used. Uh, I was going about trying to destroy the church. A, uh, the, the uh, angel says, arise, and I arose and stood up. If thou wilt be destroyed, seek no, no more to destroy the church. Uh, then he's going to start going, verse 12. Now, he fell to the earth. He doesn't hear the rest of what's being said. I was racked with, listen to the words of 12, eternal torment. My soul was harrowed up. Now, we're just talking about the power of remembering, right? I need you to see the parallel. There's always another side to this. The, the remembering when we remember the things that the Lord has done in mercy for us that helps build our faith. Is there another type of re remembering that does just the opposite? How does the eternal torment happen? How is it that we end up being uh, feeling all the pains of a damned soul? It's the guilt, and in order to have our guilt, we have to remember. So the remembering cuts both ways. Remembering the mercy is true, but also if I remember my sins, that's what causes the torment. Okay? And he's going to say, um, I, verse 13, I did remember all my sins and iniquities for which I was tormented with the pains of hell. The pains of hell is remembering our sins. Uh, I saw that I had rebelled against my God and that I had not kept His holy commandments. And then he's going to say, 14, I had murdered many of his children or rather led them into destruction 
Yea, in fine, so great had been my iniquities that the very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. I just laugh. When, when you start dealing with people that it's like, it's about diversity and every road leads to God. Every road will bring you into His presence. It doesn't matter what religion you are, or even if you have no religion. Every one of you will just end up in the presence of God, and it really will be in an eternal kumbaya. Don't you think, though, that we have to say that? Yeah, but, but the reality is, if we start, start taking people that have willfully sinned, and we say, guess what? You're going to get to someday, you're going to get, we're going to pick you up, and we're going to stand you right in the presence of God. Won't that be wonderful? With the full understanding that what you did was sinful, the full understanding of how bad you did what, how many of your His commandments you broke, and now I'm going to stand you in the presence of God and you're going to love it. Yeah. And in essence, that would be hell. The description of hell is having to stand in the presence of God with a full knowledge of your sins. That's hell. It's not a place of burning. The burning is having, having to do exactly what he's saying. The very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. That's hell. And he had that. So he's going through all this and now for the first time he's really understanding clearly how off the track he was and how destructive he was and this was the church of God and he was fighting to destroy it and fight of everything that his dad had tried to teach him and now suddenly he got it. That's hell. The mercy of God is not to bring you into His presence. That, that's the mercy. I love you so much, I won't put you in my presence until you're in it ready to handle that presence. And guess what? Eternally, eternally, I may never bring you into my presence so that you, because if I'm going to say eternally you will be around me, that's eternal hell. The most eternal, blood, wonderful thing that He does is put people in the celestial kingdom rather than live in the celestial kingdom with Him. In a place that they are not a, that, they're, that they don't have enough light to handle. Honestly, think of my dad. He was totally inactive and mm -hmm. off doing all kinds of crazy things. And when the missionaries would come to visit him, he would just, you know. Yeah. And even though he'd been endowed in 69, he was never back to church. And so when he was dying, we asked if he wanted to be buried in this temple for him. He was like, no. No. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be there. Yeah. I, I've mentioned before, and I'll, I'll just say again, because some of you haven't heard me say this, is that I, I, had a, I had a client who had a dream, and I believe it was a vision. It was very simple. And again, she just saw a, a large field with all kinds of people standing there, and she saw the Savior coming down. And, and she saw... One a large group of people that immediately wanted to get as close to the Savior as they could. And then she saw another group standing over here that wanted a little distance and they're just watching. And she saw another group, about a third, she said, that just turned and ran. And I thought, there's sick coming. 
that we choose where we want to be. Hell has an exit. You know, if we want to go there, we can go there. But if we want to stay in there, we we will go where we're comfortable. Now, notice at the end of this, he's going to say, uh, "So the very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul." Seventeen. It came to pass that I was racked with torment. I was harrowed up by the memory of my many sins. And in the middle of that, he remembers one other thing. I heard my father prophesy concerning the coming of one Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, as my mind caught hold of this thought, I said, Oh, Jesus, thou Son of God. Now, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. That, that idea of snatching, that sounds like, that's not like a slow retrieval, is it? A very carefully, slowly pull you out. A snatch is a grab. It's, it's come and get you. He says, I was snatched. I was pulled. And then he's going to say, when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. And then look at 22. Methought I saw, even as our father Lehi saw, God sitting on his throne, surrounded by numerous concourses of angels, in the attitude of singing and praising God, and then this one who did not want to be in the presence of God says what? My soul longed to be there. If you know where you are, if you want to know where you are at the moment, and I, it's, it's this moment, if I told you that the Savior was now waiting in the lobby out there, would you have a longing to be there or would you run out the other door? That probably gives you some idea of how you see you. Okay. So. Oh, we didn't get a chance to hit the president. President Iron gave a great talk on remembering. Okay. So I want to finish today. And I, I've shared this quote before. Uh, it's one of my all-time favorites from uh, Elder uh, C.S. Lewis. The, the quorum of the uh, British... Anyway. Here, here, we, we've talked about the fact, he reminded us that uh, C.S. Lewis started off as in the Anglican Church, became an agnostic and an atheist when he went to Oxford because he was smarter. And then, and then he has this... Conversion experience starting with J.R.R. Tolkien that then walks him in there and he struggles with the idea of faith. Uh, and then, ultimately, he will, he will say this in, in uh, Surprise by Joy. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Which, which, uh, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> I just think that's incredible. 
I was listening last night. You can go to YouTube and you can get, we have one of the surviving BBC broadcasts that C.S. Lewis did from which mere Christianity uh, was taken. And if you want to hear his voice talking about this, it's just, it's a pretty cool experience. But you just get this sense of somebody with his potential being snatched. That the Lord grabbed him to do a work. And, he, and sometimes, as convert, we are reluctant. We go dragging, kicking and screaming into sainthood. We have to be snatched out because if we're left to, to I, I want to say, revel in those, those sins and the past and that pain, it makes our journey that much longer and that much more difficult because we keep pulling ourselves back out. We do. Yeah, see, that, that's why I think the most potent uh, line he's saying in here, I finally have to admit that God is God. He is who he says he is. Knock it off. And just get with the program. Even if we're reluctantly being dragged along. Alma's experience is not our experience. He his calling and the things that he had to do, you can kind of see throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon. But the, the concept of being snatched, of having to be changed, of having to be brought out of bondage, to, to rely on the experience of our fathers, is incredible. And finally, I, I, would, I would say this. In our collective unconscious about whatever class we teach, whether it's primary kids or youth or our own kids or family home evenings or each other, our ability to say to somebody else, I remember what it was like to feel this. That's why we take a quarter of our sacrament meetings and they are fast and testimony meetings. The idea of a fast and testimony meeting is to remember. What merciful things the Lord hath done unto the children of men. Specifically me, and I have a testimony, and I know it's true. And we share that unconscious that consciously with everybody else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and remember is in our prayer. That I will remember him and keep his commandments. Why? Because I remember him. It's a remembering process. Anyway, uh, I bear you my testimony that I remember. I remember what it was like to initially have a testimony. I remember what merciful things the Lord has done for me in spite of my follies and stupids. And I remember what great things he's done for my father's. In my own family, and in the, our church family, and in, the, and in your families, I remember. And that builds my strength. And I leave that testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.